This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarterbin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will kind of select at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 63rd episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we're looking at Nightmask, number one, from Marvel Comics' New Universe line, cover dated November 1986. This is the first of a three-episode series, a visit to another dead universe, this time Marvel's mid-to-late-1980s New Universe initiative. But this is also a back-to-the-bin-style bandwagon-jumping, coattail-riding episode. Because in December, Marvel is introducing a new ongoing, featuring a pair of old New U characters, in the title Starbrand and Nightmask. So consider this episode a primer, preparation for that new series, which will be written by Greg Weissman, with Dominique Stanton handling the art chores. But first, a little feedback. Actually, maybe more than a little. I haven't done feedback on the last three episodes because they've all been specials or guest-heavy. So here we are with a good amount of feedback. Neil Stanifer wrote in about the Micronauts issues I covered in the early days of the show. Professor Allen, thanks so much for covering even a single issue of the Micronauts comic. I was 13 years old in 1979, and I clearly recall gobbling up Micronauts comics as quickly as they came out. This was no mean feat in the time before comics specialty shops and pull lists. My friends and I sometimes had to ride our bikes to four different food stores, two drug stores, and a rather notorious liquor store to be sure we got all our favorites. The liquor store also carried Marvel black and white mags, so it was worth braving the shadier side of town. That's hilarious, Neil. I'm just one year older than you, but for me, the collector gene just wasn't as strong in me at that age. It wasn't until I was able to drive to the comic shop and to small comic book shows that the idea of looking for specific issue numbers of specific titles was part of my comic book life. So it was the Cloverly Drugstore that was the main comic book source, and we were at that store, or at least in that shopping center, two or three times a week. Neil comments that Micronauts was always worth the aching legs they had after 10 or 12 miles on fixed-gear bikes in the scorching San Joaquin Valley sun. Commitment, man. That's commitment. Talking about Micronauts, he says, The excitement of action figures come to life with sheer joy. And Michael Golden's art fit the fast-tempo stories perfectly. My brother and I collected the action figures, and yes, we had the pre-idiot-proof versions that actually fired trachea-plugging bits of plastic a good three feet. Once a month, we would take our long bike ride, then spend what remained of the morning reading the latest Micronauts book. Thank heavens for decompressed storytelling. Now that is a genius point. There's no way that the hours of effort of getting comic books in the late 70s era would have been worth it if it had translated into uh, seven minutes of entertainment. Those Micronauts issues were a solid 20 to 30 minutes reading time, so well worth the effort. 
Once the comics were read, we often spent the rest of the afternoon with our action figures, making up our own follow-up stories. There was just something about the idea of tiny action heroes in our normal-sized world that was intrinsically appealing. Thanks for that hit of nostalgia. Glad to do it, Neil. Glad to do it. Jason Trenner wrote in on the greatness of Doom 2099. Greetings. Well, that was fun. Then again, John Francis Moore is an underrated comics writer. His X-Men 2099 and X-Force runs are great stuff. Look forward to seeing what is next for the various shows on the feed. Thank you, Jason. I agree with you on John Francis Moore. Jason also wrote in on the Red Hot issues from episode 60. Well, that was interesting. The funny thing with the Red Hot is that it has one thing in common with my 30-plus page Superman team-up cartoon concept slash manifesto. I added the manifesto part. That being a building of legacy of heroes. In my story, the current age of heroes are from either Superman's first appearance or the formation of the Justice League. That's just been five years. The Justice Society, Infinity Inc., the Charlton Heroes, Wildcats, and such as all had come before. Also, the universe is just set after the crisis, and the original sidekicks of the various heroes are trying to find their own place. Dick Grayson, Wally, Donna, and such. Yeah, I can see that would be uh, interesting stuff, Jason. You know, I I like the idea of setting a new story after the arrival of powers, maybe a few years after, or, or a generation or two after. That way you can tell a new story, new new to the readers, without having to hit all of the tropes of the origin story. Jason ends with, back to Red Hot. I really do hope in some show you cover that final issue, as I really want to see how that story ends. I'd love to read that last issue too. Calling Mike Luoma. Calling Mike Luoma. Robert Ward commented on the other story we covered there. Thank you so much for this episode. After listening, I actually downloaded Project Nemesis with my monthly Audible credit, and I'm really digging it. I'm a little more than halfway through, and I'm definitely thinking about ordering the comic issues from my LCS. Yes, that that project is really a, a multimedia effort. Luke mentioned the novel, and evidently there's an audio version too that, that Robert's reading, as well as the comic. So if you want Project Nemesis, there are plenty of formats available. Jason also wrote in on the next episode, our super spooky Halloween issue, with guest host Luke Giaconetti. Greetings. Well, that was an interesting issue to see explored in the quarter bin. Love seeing a reprint of one of Morbius' 70s adventures on the show. Man, he did some weird stuff in that book. That is definitely what I hear about that book. The Facebook posts for some or all of these issues were Shared on Facebook by Chris Willett, The Sutherlands, Chris Ivey from Mythmaking ETC, among others. Thanks for all that feedback, everybody. I really appreciate it. Now, on to our book for this episode. Night Mask, number one, had a cover price of 75 cents, meaning I acquired this book at a very nice two-thirds markdown. The cover, by Al Milgram and Bob Wyacek. So is a kid, sick in bed, with another kid in a wheelchair. Above them, in a dream scenario, is the black-clad night mask, facing off against an unseen enemy. All we see of this other character is a pair of really big hands, one of which is holding a big old stone hammer. 
The story, titled The Awakening, was written by Archie Goodwin and penciled by Tony Salmons. They were the character's co-creators. The art was inked by Brett Blevins. As an academic, I have to say this about what's to follow. Marvel.wikia.com had a really good synopsis for this issue, and I totally used it as the basis for my synopsis. I made some changes, added some stuff, combined some stuff, deleted some stuff. But this is probably two-thirds, three-quarters from marvel.wikia.com. I just felt that I needed to say that. We start in Keith Remsen's dreams, in which he is running naked through endless darkness. Dreams don't bother Keith. He and his sister Teddy used to play guinea pig from time to time for their parents' dream research. Keith knows there's something in this darkness, and if he doesn't keep running, it'll find him. Keith's dreams are interrupted by a piercing bright light. Then he hears a voice. Teddy. And as much as the light frightens me, I leap. Back in the waking world, we learn that Keith is in a coma in a hospital. Next to him, his wheelchair-bound sister, Teddy, is left blinded by a flash of light. A doctor rushes in with radio news about the white event. And all notice that Keith has finally come out of his coma. Keith starts to ask about his parents, but then he remembers the last time he saw them. The family was all at Dulles Airport in Washington, seeing him off for his summer internship at Horst Kleinman's world-famous Dream Institute in Zurich, where his psychologist parents had met. None of them noticed a man set a heavy bag down besides Keith's luggage. As he recalls the exploding airport terminal, Keith realizes that terrible memory was what he had been running from throughout his coma. He breaks down, believing that if he had only handled his own bags, his parents might be alive today instead of him. Dr. Ballad consoles him, saying it's the terrorist's fault and no one else's. Later, at the hospital's rehab pool, hot Dr. Lita breaks up the pity party by tossing Keith in the pool. They've learned that the last bit of bomb shrapnel, the one that gave him a mysterious moon-shaped scar on his forehead, is now stable. So it's time to start his physical therapy. As he dreams that night, Keith again finds himself back at the airport. Only this time, it's also the hospital, dusty, deserted, and covered with cobwebs because dreams are like that sometimes. Keith realizes the dream has never been like this before. And then he hears a voice sobbing in the distance. He sees a man grappled by monstrous red tentacles climbing out of the darkness below. Keith tries to rip away at the tentacles, but more thrust back up as fast as he can tear them away. The stranger says that the gnome will never allow him to escape. He will have to die to protect the gnome's treasure. Keith frees the stranger, and the man recognizes Keith. The scene changes around them, becoming the day of the bombing. The stranger is the bomber. Keith shouts in rage, but the man is too terrified of what lurks behind Keith. Large, hairy, inhuman hands grip Keith's shoulders as a rasping voice addresses him. Keith is awakened by his sister's screaming. 
and the scar on his forehead is glowing. Teddy says that she's been having the same dreams ever since he had come out of the coma. Now she's convinced that the two were having the exact same dream. A commotion draws their attention to the hall. Another of the victims from that airport bomb has just died from a heart attack. Teddy and Keith try to convince Dr. Bala that Teddy was somehow tuning in on Keith's dreams, similar to the way their father had been working to cybernetically tune in on people's dreams. The doctor thinks that's wish fulfillment, trying to carry on their father's work while also finding their killer. Teddy shows Ballad a drawing she made of the man from their dreams, which matches perfectly the passport photo of the man from the airport. After more dream experiments with hot Dr. Lita, Dr. Ballad explains that something in Keith's mind has been unlocked, perhaps by the fragment pressing on his brain, something that allows him to synchronize his unique brainwave patterns with those around him. I can enter their dreams. But that's dangerous. If a dream becomes too intense, he may not be able to break free. And if the dream ends violently, the shock could be devastating. Keith dreams, yet again, ending up in a cold cemetery this time. He hears a familiar rasping voice behind a heavy door. The voice of the gnome. The gnome brings down his hammer on a side of beef as he chastises a man bound by tubes to life support. Keith has found a way to hide, transforming himself into a black-clad figure with a white burst of light on his chest and a large black mask that covers much of his face, but not the glowing scar on his forehead. The two struggle, but the gnome presses his massive hammer lower, choking Keith. Teddy brings him out of it again. Babbled lectures that the symbiotic link is not something that should be abused. He only suffered mild shock this time, but there's no guarantee that Teddy won't suffer some pass-along effect or that she'll always be able to bring him back to awakenedness. Teddy and Keith talk about the significance of the gnome in his dream and the fact that the being had a German accent. When a nurse comes by with Teddy's medication for the day, Teddy wants to refuse the sedative, but Keith says they'll both take it. But Keith doesn't. Whatever happens to him, it won't also happen to Teddy if she's under sedation. In a quiet wing of the hospital, Keith lies down with a German-English dictionary beside him, and he waits for the dream. Eventually, a scar begins to glow, casting shadows over him that become the night mask costume. And he is slowly drawn into the end of the world, a ruined cityscape devoid of life aside from a few vultures. He follows them and finds the bomber crawling through the sand, the gnome nearby. He sees Keith, telling him he has no chance of escape. I have no intention to, only of making certain that you don't, Dr. Kleinman. The gnome is shocked into stillness. Keith explains that there were plenty of clues once he had his German dictionary. As he speaks, the gnome shrinks to the size of an ordinary man in a technically advanced suit. It's only then that Kleinman recognizes Keith. You are their son? The one they were sending to the Institute to spy on me? To learn my secrets of moving in dreams? Kleinman, the dream scientist, 
is revealed as a slightly paranoid, slightly madman, not realizing how much the parents had truly respected him. Kleinman falls forward towards a swirling abyss. Keith saves the man from the abyss, determined to see the killer face justice. Kleinman begs Keith to use his gift to save them both. But without Teddy, he isn't strong enough. Kleinman is pulled into the abyss again when Keith awakens with a start. But Teddy was sedated. She shouldn't be able to awaken. But she reveals that she didn't take her meds either. By breaking the dream world's hold on Keith, Teddy may have saved Kleinman's life. But what matters right now is Keith's gift. And he and Teddy need to figure out the best way that gift can be used. In Zurich, two technicians speak among themselves. Kleinman's life signs have stabilized. He will recover. As for the equipment, blown up in the strain of recovering him, Kleinman will surely insist that they rebuild. Attention, Joes. This is General Hawk. I have an important mission for you. I need you to listen to G.I. Joe, a real American headcast. It's a monthly podcast where Aaron Moss, Codename Head, and two other Joes, Ryan Daly and Kyle Benning, will be reporting on the comic book G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero. Previously published by Marvel, currently being published by IDW Comics. We'll also cover the special missions, the yearbooks, order battles, etc. To hear their message, report to G.I. Joe.HeadSpeaks.com or iTunes or Stitcher Radio. You can get further information at Facebook, Google Plus, and Twitter. All under G.I. Joe, a real American headcast. Dismissed. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe. G.I. Joe, a real American headcast, is a proud member of the headcast family. The world never gives up. He'll stay till the fight's won. G.I. Joe will dare. G.I. Joe. And we're back. Now, I'm a sucker for alternate universes, or lowercase, new universes in general. And this one, the Marvel uppercase, new universe, was the first one that occurred while I was an active comic reader. Maybe the first one ever for the big two. The fourth world of Jack Kirby doesn't really count, because that was integrated into the greater DCU. And I, I don't think you can really count the Silver Age reboots, the... Earth-1, Earth-2 delineation either. That might technically count under a strict definition, maybe. But for practical purposes, the new universe was the first attempt, I think, in the modern age of comics to create a complete, all-in-one superhero universe from scratch. And I'm a sucker for these. 
Obviously, I've, I've mentioned my favorite comic book series of all time, Doom 2099, and I've talked about digging the techno-comics universe. I've talked more Ultraverse in this very podcast than some shows on the Ultraverse Network did. I've read and really enjoyed the first 80 or 90 issues of Ultimate Spider-Man. And all of that started here with the New Universe Initiative from Marvel, circa 1986. By this time, I was in college, and there was a comic book store in the nearest shopping center to campus, maybe a 15-minute walk, 20-minute walk. That store, Dave's Comics, by the way, advertised a ton in comics of the 80s and 90s. They didn't do the big mile-high style ads with comics and price lists, but they did some small ads on, on those hodgepodge pages, and also there were some half-page ads that would list a 10 or 15 stores, and they were often listed there. This is Richmond, Virginia, and I haven't been in that store in a number of years, a, a pretty big number of years, but I was in that shopping center just last year, and saw the sign for Dave's Comics. So I certainly think it's still there. Anyway, there in the mid-80s, I was willing to try new number one, stuff I'd never heard of, independence, black and whites, whatever. As an aside, I want to say this. Fortunately, during the time that I met my future wife, and we dated and were engaged and became married, I was in full comic book collecting mode including my regular trips to Dave's Comics. Also, the time that she first met me, like that we were actually introduced to each other at the dining hall, I was wearing big old radio headphones. I did take a decade off from comic book reading after we were married, but she can't say that when she met me, she didn't know what she was getting into. I was into comics and spent all my time with headphones on. The only thing that's changed is that those are earbuds now. But other than that, it's pretty much the same thing. I think it's Scott Gardner who told the story once on a podcast of a new girlfriend seeing the comic book room and asking hesitantly about it. And Scott's reply, again, I'm pretty sure it was him. If I'm actually quoting someone else, I apologize. But the answer was something to the effect of, Honey, These were here long before you were, and they're going to be here long after you're gone. Fortunately, I never had to actually have that conversation with my wife. She just understands, I think. So nowadays, when she asks how I spent a particular day, and and I say, yeah, I was talking on the internet to people I've never met about comic books, she sort of understands, yes. She shakes her head, but I think she sort of understands. And, and and not to get all darkness to light on you, but the Bible says, a good wife who can find? She is more precious than jewels. Amen to that. Back to comic books. We'll talk more about the history of the new universe in the following episodes of this little mini-series. So let's get back to what happened in this issue in particular. As you may have noticed, a lot happened in this issue, which may be why it ended up at an extra length, 24 pages. And still it felt a little cramped. 
But the joke is now, 30 years later, this would have been enough plot for a six-issue arc. Some truth to that, of course. But this compressed storytelling, despite the wordiness and the amount of time it takes to read, is strangely fast-paced in parts. That's because there is action every couple of pages. Personally, I thought it was a bit much how often Keith has to fall asleep in the issue in order to get to those action scenes. But that is one of the risks with the dreaming another world into being trope or the entering into other people's dreams trope. And make no mistake, this setup is a trope. I've read at least a half dozen novels, maybe a dozen, with similar premises. And we've all seen movies with similar concepts as their jumping-off point. And Marvel itself revisited this notion again just five years later in the 616 with the comic Sleepwalker. Hello, Chris Tyler. So, the repetition of the dream-awake-dream-awake cycle did slow the action down, as did some of the necessary exposition. I did like that the story didn't take place in New York. They made a big point about the airport being in Washington, D.C., for instance, being being Dulles International. And I think that may have been a new universe concept. I don't remember that for sure. But putting stories somewhere other than NYC would give the new you a separate identity. So, I, again, I'm, I'm pretty sure that wasn't a coincidence that this one took place in, in D.C. The blinding flash of light that starts the book is the single, unusual, unique event in the new universe. It's the origin point for all the powered beings in in all of the books. And I like that they didn't dwell on its importance to other books. They didn't point out that this event also affected other characters in other books. They just talked about it in relation to Keith. If you were reading the other books or were aware of the goings-on in the greater new you, then you knew the significance. But they were surprisingly subtle about it here, especially for a new number one in a new line of books. And I think that was a good decision. And for a first issue, this one told a complete story with a little hint of what's to come. And that's very polite. That's very considerate for a first issue. I don't like books that don't give you enough in the first issue to decide whether you want to read the second one or not. Uh, But this one gives you enough characters and plot and drama and setup and fights that by the end of this, you have a pretty good feel of what's to come. I don't remember Night Mask being one of my favorites in the new U line, and from this reread, I can sort of see why. It wasn't bad by any means, but it just didn't really grab me. The dreamscape art is pretty good. The sense of weirdness and unreality comes through. But there was, again, nothing special about it, nothing too memorable. Good. Solid. As a writer, Archie Goodwin's also a real pro. And this was a legitimately competent, professional comic book. I know that sounds exactly like the definition of damning with faint praise. And maybe I'm okay with that. Again, I don't want to spend a ton of time in this episode on the history of the new you, but I did want to mention that Night Mask ended up in the first wave of cancellations 
gone after only 12 issues. Two other books ran this short, but one of those had an annual, so I think Night Mask fits in the bottom two of the eight titles in terms of their success. But like I said at the start of the episode, Night Mask perseveres. He was part of Warren Ellis's reboot or, or reimagining on the 20-year the anniversary of this in 2006 in New Universal. And then he resurfaced in the real Marvel U, the 616. And I know it's not a big deal because everyone in the 616 has been an Avenger. I don't mean just superheroes. I mean all 7 billion Earthlings in the 616 have at least had a tryout run for the Avengers, I'm pretty sure. But along with the star of next episode's book, Starbrand, spoilers, Nightmask joined the Avengers. And that's a pretty good comeback for the star of one of the weakest-selling titles in a weak-selling initiative. There is something about this character, this concept, that isn't totally evident here in issue one, I think. Something about him that nevertheless endures, that has some lasting value. The verdict on Night Mask number one, again, I've read plenty better, but I've also read plenty worse. If I had to say how much I thought this book was worth, how much I'd recommend you dear listeners pay for it, I'd land probably around 25 cents, and maybe a few pennies more, three for a dollar. More than that, I'd maybe hesitate. It's a legitimate quarter bin book. And if you can find more of this run at or around that price point, you could do a lot worse. You know, I just think that the free market has spoken on Night Mask 1 and landed at about the right price. That wraps up my coverage of Night Mask 1, bringing episode 63 of the Quarterbin Podcast to a close. In episode 64 we continue our visit to the new universe and our shameless search engine optimizing bandwagon jumping for the new Starbrand and Nightmask title. We'll cover Starbrand, giant size annual number one from, of course, the Marvel Comics new universe line, cover dated 1987. If you have any questions or comments about this issue, or the podcast, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Sir! Sir.